From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. He went into prison as a teenager and was granted clemency as an adult. Six months into his new life, Curtis Brooks says it's hard to make friends. The typical reaction that I face is, I feel bad for you that you went through that. You know, that's not something that concerns me. And then those people immediately vanish and I don't hear anything from them ever again. When freedom is complicated. Then, why the term women's suffrage misses a lot of nuance. Even after 1920, in Colorado and throughout the country, practices and policies continue to exclude people based on ethnicity and race from voting. And later, it was a shining city on a hill. Well, on the plains, actually. Why Deerfield, Colorado, now considered an endangered place, was an oasis from oppression. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're going to start with an update in the story of a man incarcerated at 15 who thought he'd spend life in prison. Curtis Brooks, now 40, was granted clemency in 2018 by former Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper. Brooks was released in July, and with the new year, we wanted to check in on him. CPR's Andrea Dukakis has been following this case for a long time. Hi, Andrea. Hi, Ryan. You interviewed Brooks when he was in prison. You went back when he was released. And now this picture of his new life. Why have you focused on this case in particular, though? Well, Brooks is one of hundreds around the country who were kids when they were sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Much of this started in the 1990s when violent crime was rising And the system's answer was to put lots of people behind bars, and that included juveniles. Now, a couple of decades later, a lot's changed for these kids. They're now adults. Yeah, what has changed and why? The U.S. Supreme Court has been chipping away at harsh sentences for juveniles. In 2012, justices ruled that automatic sentences of life without parole for juveniles is unconstitutional. The court cited research that juvenile brains are less developed than adults and they lack a full understanding of consequences. Research shows their brains are more capable of change, meaning rehabilitation. Curtis Brooks and others are now being released into a world they've never lived in as adults. They've never had a full-time job, had to pay rent. Some haven't driven a car. And I think that's why these stories are so fascinating. What is that reintegration like? Another aspect of the Brooks case and some of the others, Andrea, is that they were at the scene of a murder, but they didn't pull the trigger. Right. Brooks was convicted of felony murder, and that can mean someone's found guilty of first-degree murder if they were at the scene of a crime but didn't use the deadly weapon. Brooks was involved in a 1995 robbery in Aurora. He was with some other boys when they decided to steal a car, but it didn't go as planned, and one of the boys shot and killed the victim, 24-year-old Christopher Ramos. So to be clear, if the same thing had happened today, the sentence could be very different. Right. And Colorado lawmakers are actually now considering changing the law so that anyone convicted of felony murder, adults too, can't get these life without parole sentences. Now, in Brooks' case in 2018, uh, then-Governor Hickenlooper granted clemency. Other cases have made their way through the courts. Uh, So as we said, a lot of these juvenile offenders, now adults, are getting out. Yeah, Brooks, as we said, was released in July. I saw him take his first steps outside of the Lyman Correctional Facility southeast of Denver. I remember it was a hot day. It felt unusually humid, and his attorney had brought him shorts and a shirt to wear. 
Brooks was then paroled to Maryland, where he grew up and has family. And for now, he lives with his grandmother. And you just talked to Brooks to see what his first six months or so have been like. Yeah, I was curious to see how he's doing, what it's like to finally be outside of the prison routine and figuring out life in 2020 versus 1995. Mm. I asked what he appreciates most about his new life, even something that might seem trivial. And he said nothing is trivial to him right now. Everything is still new and fresh for me, even the days which aren't so great. I have an appreciation for those rather than sitting in a prison cell right now. Just the freedom to wake up in the morning and say, okay, how do I want my life's direction to go? Uh, Sometimes it can be overwhelming because you get presented with so much stuff, but just having that opportunity to choose your life's direction is a big thing for me. The day I reached Brooks, he just started a new job at a law firm that does lobbying. He doesn't know yet what he'll be working on. Um, I should say Brooks is self-educated. He took a lot of classes in prison. He got into philosophy and studied several foreign languages. So I think that could help him in the working world. Okay. He seems to be settling in. What has been the toughest thing for Curtis Brooks to adjust to, do you think? He says making friends is hard. Some people know his story. He's been in the media. He's been profiled in a documentary. And he says those people are understanding, but it's different when he meets others. At some point, I will always let people know exactly who I am, what my circumstances are, out of fairness to them, to know who it is that they're dealing with. And the typical reaction that I face is... I feel bad for you that you went through that. You know, that's not something that concerns me. And then those people immediately vanish and I don't hear anything from them ever again. Mm. So it's almost like they convey that it's fine and it doesn't matter to them, but then they disappear. Yeah, almost in a non-confrontational, they don't want to be honest about what their feelings are or their initial reaction is it's no big deal and they pull it up on their phone and look into the details, and then decide that that's not something that they want or were willing to accept in their lives. Brooks told me he understands their reaction, doesn't fault them, but it's made it hard to get close to people. Right. I mean, essentially, he gets ghosted. I mean, I think that's Mm -hmm. the term we'd use today. I, I often think so often, Andrea, about the changes in technology. You know, he went to prison when portable CD players were all the rage and came out when my phone does just about everything. Right. Curtis is technically inclined to begin with, so I think he's adjusted pretty quickly. He's become a huge gamer since he's been out. That makes some sense to me. I mean, if it's hard to make new friends, he might turn to the online world. Right. But even when he connects with people online, he says he tells them about his past and they back away, too. He also shares a sense a lot of us have that the Internet can be really isolating And he has a unique perspective, having lived without technology for so long. There's not much access to it in prison unless devices are snuck in. I think it's meant a potential disconnect as people delve more into the virtual side of things that brings about a different reality for interacting with people that doesn't necessarily always translate to the personal face-to-face human relations and interactions. That's the voice of Curtis Brooks. We're getting an update on his case from CPR's Andrea Dukakis. Brooks went into prison as a very young man, got clemency, and has been released. In general, Andrea, about half of inmates released from Colorado prisons end up back inside. So does Brooks have any concerns about that happening to him? Recidivism is high in the state, but Brooks isn't concerned. He's determined to live a good life and make up for his crime. 
I'll note here, though, that the family of his victim, Christopher Ramos, is not happy that he's out. They released a statement through the district attorney's office when Brooks was granted clemency, and it said, quote, Christopher did nothing to have his life taken, and he does not get a second chance at life. But in terms of Brooks' chances of succeeding, he's lucky that he has quite a bit of support from his own family and from others in Maryland who had advocated for his release. But he thinks there are really good reasons so many people wind up back in prison after they get out. You know, recidivism is high, not just because individuals come out of prison with, you know, this mindset that they're just criminals and they're not going to change and they don't care what anybody thinks. You have a lot of people who come out of prison without the tools to succeed, and they're put in a position where once they start to fail, they don't know anything else but to devolve themselves back down into what they were doing before because it's the easy win. Brooks has a lot of ideas to reform the justice system. Generally, he thinks corrections needs to focus more on rehabilitation, less on punishment. He's been invited to come to Colorado soon to talk with lawmakers, and he hopes to meet with the head of corrections here, Dean Williams. Williams talks a lot about reform, including doing a better job of preparing inmates for release. He says it's a public safety issue since most will eventually get out of prison. Did Curtis Brooks mention any specifics about what he'd you know, suggest policy-wise. He wants to talk to Williams about an idea a buddy of his had in prison, the friend still inside. The idea is to give inmates a chance at a special unit where they have much more freedom. You take the individuals who want to apply for this unit, not to be restricted by sentence or anything else, and you give them an opportunity to live almost as though they were released on parole. You live in this unit, you have your responsibilities with your work assignments, you have a curfew that you have to meet up with, you have a parole officer who you have to keep your meetings with, keep informed on your daily activities. It provides a a setting that's different than to just wake up, go eat, stay out of trouble, go to sleep and repeat. Allow people to grow and change and be better citizens when they come out instead of coming out with nothing completely unprepared. But people might balk that that kind of freedom would be extended to inmates no matter they're sentenced. I mean, I I suppose that he is focused on good behavior. Is he saying, though, that offenders would go into the community like during the day? No, but he is saying in other ways this would mirror what it's like to be on parole. And it isn't a far-fetched idea. As you know, we spoke with Dean Williams on the show in October. Again, he's the head of the State Department of Corrections. Before that, he ran corrections in Alaska. And he said he's all about work release. You should be working before you get out. Working off-site. Working off-site. Come back to the prison at night. Work during the day, prison at night. Is that safe? For the rest it, of the community. It is safe, and I did it in Alaska last year. We did it there for several years, working there and coming back to the prison at night. Williams refers to this type of approach as normalization, which is already used elsewhere in Norway, for instance. Curtis Brooks also talked about the dads he knew in prison and the need to help them reintegrate with their children. He thinks they need more opportunities to get reacquainted before they get out and have to deal with real-world responsibilities. Andrea, thanks for this update. Sure. CPR's Andrea Dukakis, she's been following the Curtis Brooks case for years. Brooks was released from prison six months ago at age 39. He'd been behind bars since he was 15. Brooks was sentenced to life without parole for his part in a murder and later granted clemency. Later this week, 
perspective on when children become adults. What does brain science tell us about when someone's old enough to really understand consequences from the courtroom to the battlefield? It's often said that Colorado is one of the first states to give women the vote. And that's a reference to 1893 when voters here passed a referendum on women's suffrage. We made a passing reference to this history in a story last week. We were talking about the fact that Colorado's never elected a woman as U.S. senator. Listener Elizabeth Epps of Greenwood Village cringes every time she hears the history shorthanded as Colorado giving women the vote. What rubs me the wrong way about it and what rubs me the wrong way every time I hear someone mention the phrase women getting the right to vote is that almost always what they actually mean, even if they aren't aware of it, is they mean white women. And a couple things that are problematic about that. One is it's really pretty remarkable when it happened in Colorado and then when it happened with the 19th Amendment for white women to get the right to vote. That was a big deal. But every time we say women, it does two things. It defaults to assuming that the generic, the default woman is white, and it very actively erases both the existence of women of color and all their contributions to the suffrage movement. And so Epps thinks we ought to be using different language. Like an easy way that I think to say it is to say, um, instead of saying, you know, women first got the right to vote, is to say the first groups of women or the first set of women, you know, something that acknowledges It's still a huge deal. It's just not women. It's just not all women. We wanted to learn more about the uneven rollout of women's suffrage. So we reached History Colorado and its chief operating officer, Don DePrince. She's actually helping organize the Women's Vote Centennial Commemoration this year. Don, nice to see you again. You too, Ryan. And I would just like to have you reflect on what we heard from our listener. She makes an excellent point, and it's one that we try to make all the time when we do this commemoration work around the Women's Vote Centennial, that in 1893, the all-male voters of Colorado ended gender discrimination in voting, which is very different than saying all women suddenly had the right to vote. Was it that black women, women of color in general, were left out? Help us understand the dynamics. Well, there continued to be, even after 1920, in Colorado and throughout the country, practices and policies that continue to exclude people based on ethnicity and race from voting. You say 1920 because that's when the 19th Amendment passed. Yes, yes. uh, Which is to say the change at the federal level. Mm -hmm. But it's often that laws change and things take time in the real world. What did that look like in Colorado across the country for people who were not white? Yeah, there are a number of laws in place, including the Chinese Exclusion Act, policies and practices at the federal level, of course, that disallowed Native American women from voting. And we know of poll taxes that existed, I mean, up until the, what, 1950s, 60s? Really, it wasn't until the Voting Rights Act of 1965 that all of those things were legally by the Supreme Court outlawed. Was the suffrage movement in its earliest forms, was it a kind of racist movement? Yeah, there are lots of accounts of women that were in the suffrage movement who use racist practices to convince men that women's suffrage was the right choice. 
Give me an example. What do you mean? Uh, you know, one of the things that they like to explain was that this was a way to dilute the African-American vote. If you had more white women voting, it would, in fact, impact, you know, the number of white people who were voting. Oh, I see. Versus African-American males to that point. Yes. Yes. Ah. So you're about to tell the story of suffrage uh, through the centennial. And to what extent will you elevate women of color who were suffragists? We're doing an entire series of speakers and investigations and exhibits um, that explore all the complexity of suffrage in this country. One of the great, you know, grandmothers to the story here in Colorado is an African-American woman named Elizabeth Ensley. And she is this incredible, you know, woman that was able to organize African-American women here in Denver, you know, taught them how to register to vote. She was part of the larger effort, but then also used it to organize African-American women here in Denver. Elizabeth Ensley, I understand that you know some about her, but that there's a lot still to learn. Yes, we would love to know much more about Elizabeth Ensley. We've been trying to locate papers, her letters, her artifacts, archives related to her life and the work that she's done here in Colorado. Okay, you're on the hunt for this. Yes. The word has been spread. Yes, thank you. Thanks for being with us and exploring this complicated history with us. Yes, thank you. Don DePrince of History Colorado adding perspective on women's suffrage in our feedback segment, Loud and Clear. If you have story ideas or comments about the show, find all the ways to contact us at CPR.org connect. Since the beginning of the Republic, people have reached out to their local representatives to talk policy or get help with something. Peter Foley of Castle Pines, south of Denver, picked up the phone recently to contact one of his senators. I had called Cory Gardner's office and got put on voicemail. Foley has called Congress members in the past, including Representative Ken Buck and Senator Michael Bennett, to weigh in on issues. And usually he talks to a person on the other end of the phone. I think I called two or three times and finally decided, well, I'll just go ahead and leave a message. But will anyone ever listen to it? He asks that question of Colorado Wonders, and we asked CPR's Washington reporter Caitlin Kim to find out just what happens to those letters, emails, calls, and, yes, voicemails that you leave for your member of Congress. Full disclosure, one summer I interned for my senator where, you guessed it, the bulk of the job was going through constituent mail and answering calls. So the short answer is yes, someone does read every letter or email and listen to every call or voicemail that comes into your Congress member's office. Matthew Atwood, press secretary for Representative Scott Tipton, walked me through the process in their office. We train all of our interns and our staff assistant who are usually the first in line to answer the calls. In a usual week, Atwood says, that could be about 50 to 100 calls a day. But on a really busy day, say during impeachment or the debate around the Affordable Care Act, it could be three to 400 calls a day. And those numbers seem to track with other House member offices. We do our absolute best to make sure that uh, some live person is answering the phone. A couple of times at most, all the lines have been filled with somebody on the phone that where it's had to go to voicemail. Um, and even in those scenarios, we actively check the voicemails um, and respond uh, as quick as possible. This happens in most congressional offices, including gardeners. A gardener spokesperson says they have a number of people who answer calls and review every voice 
voicemail. She added, nothing is more important than providing the best constituent service possible. And that's also true for the other offices. After all, that job, responding and listening to We the People, is the bread and butter of being a Congress member. And yes, those messages are responded to if someone needs help or has an idea or requests a response. And the messages even make it up the chain to the boss. As Atwood points out, most people who call want to voice an opinion, and it gets tallied up, and then... The congressman reviews that just to kind of see where people are at. And many letters also make it to the desk of the boss. Representative Diana DeGette's spokesperson says she'll ask for a sampling of some letters the office receives each week. And they can receive over 2,000 letters in a typical week. Atwood in Tipton's office says they responded to 125,000 letters last year alone. And if you think it's getting tossed into Congress's version of a junk mail pile, rest assured your opinions and ideas can make a difference. Freshman Representative Joe Nagus says constituent feedback is critically important. It helps him reflect on his approach to an issue, and it can even drive legislation. Walking through the tunnels of the Capitol, he talks about a letter he received from 10-year-old Ellie Tumblin of Broomfield. She's hearing impaired and wrote to him about a medical device not covered by the Affordable Care Act. We took that letter and we visited with her mom, uh, who is an advocate in this space, and we ultimately introduced a bill called Ali's Act, which is a bipartisan bill uh, to essentially add that device under uh, the ACA. So a good example of constituent mail really having a dramatic and profound impact on the work that we do. He's even been known to pick up a call or two in the office. He talked to two middle schoolers and their teacher from Boulder when they called about the War Powers Resolution regarding Iran a couple of weeks ago. Letters and calls from kids are easy to remember and enjoy. But Nugu says it's also the messages of thanks that stick with them. It's powerful. It reminds you why the work that we're all doing here is so important uh, and, and why it's a privilege. So, Peter Foley, don't despair. You were heard. But if you really want to make sure your Congress member gets your message, a spokesperson for Representative Ed Perlmutter says, go to an event when lawmakers are in the district or sign up for a telephone town hall. In Washington, D.C., I'm Caitlin Kim, CPR News. All right. What do you wonder about? Send us your questions about Colorado to CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders. One surefire sign the temperature has plummeted is that the tire pressure light comes on in cars. It's a teachable moment, according to Skylar McKinley, spokesman for AAA Colorado. The reason you're seeing your low tire pressure light come on is because the pressure your owner's manual tells you to fill to is the cold weather max, not the absolute maximum. So if you fill to that level when it's warm out, naturally you're going to fall below it when it's cold out, because tires lose about one PSI for every 10 degrees the temperature drops. My best advice would be to plan on filling your tires when it's cold out this fall and winter, or if you're filling up on a warm day, know that you can go a couple PSI above that cold weather max and your tires will be just fine. That's what they're built to handle. Skylar McKinley of AAA Colorado advising you to generously inflate when it's warm out so you can avoid that tire pressure warning light when it's cold. We spoke in October during a pre-winter cold snap. In the early 1900s, a little farming community thrived on the plains east of Denver. There's not much left of Deerfield, Colorado today, just a roadside sign and a few empty sagging buildings. But for a few years, Deerfield embodied the dreams of more than 300 African-American people who'd homesteaded there. People were very hopeful, and they really felt like 
they could get away from the oppression. They really felt like Deerfield had potential. That's Terry Nelson of Denver's Blair Caldwell African American Research Library. She's one of several experts in the new documentary, Remnants of a Dream. Those remnants in Deerfield have long been declared endangered, but just last week, a historic preservation group tweaked that status. Filmmaker Charles Knuckles directed Remnants of a Dream. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. I'm glad to be here. You know, a phrase we heard just there struck me, that they really felt like they could get away from oppression. Say more about that, like Deerfield as an oasis. Absolutely. O.T. Jackson believed that a generation beyond emancipation, uh, African-Americans had created religious institutions and educational institutions, but now it was time to develop industrial businesses that would provide employment opportunities. And let me just say that O.T. Jackson was the founder of Deerfield. Yes, he was. Originally from Oxford, Ohio. Uh, he came to Colorado in 1877. He settled in Boulder. He was a caterer, a restaurateur, and eventually um, he became involved in Colorado politics. And he wanted a new economic opportunity, a new kind of future. Yes, he followed the teachings of Booker T. Washington, one of the prominent race leaders at the time, uh, who believed that the, the key was a back-to-the-land movement where the best practices would lie in self-help for blacks, independent self-reliance. And Deerfield was an embodiment of that self-reliance. Absolutely. O.T. Jackson wanted to create a community where African-Americans would cooperate with one another, both in business and civic activities, and create a place where people could have some input and thrive. Because... Uh, let's face it, blacks were systematically excluded from many of the um, public sector uh, systems created by the white majority. It's very interesting. Just from my Jewish perspective, it sounds very much like the intention behind a kibbutz, this idea of being connected to the land and the community as incredibly tight-knit. And this was a time when nationalist movements were... Um, popular. Huh. And Theodore Herschel created the idea that there ought to be a Jewish state around this same time. And for African Americans, this was the idea that you could empower yourself as a people, that you could really create your own community. So when Deerfield was in its heyday, uh, what was it like for the folks there? Like, what did the community look like? And, and what were the businesses that you'd see? Deerfield thrived for a time from about 1915 to 1920, the zenith of that time really being 1917 to 1920. But there were fairs that would be held in Deerfield, and the governor would come out to award prizes for the most prized fruits and vegetables grown or the best livestock or cattle that was grown. So there were picnics and fishing parties and dancing. There were churches, um, a missionary society. Deerfield was a thriving community. This was a full-time community. This was not like a kind of weekend retreat or something. These were homesteaders. Yeah. So you had to file a land claim. 
and you had to prove up that land. Therefore, you had to live on the land for a certain number of time, amount of time. You had to document your improvements. And if you met all the government requirements, you then own that land. So there are descendants perhaps today who still have claim to that land? Do you know? Well, one uh, interesting story, and this is a typical story of the American West and settling the American West is that of the Groves family. And Walker Groves was one of O.T. Jackson's last farmhands, and his sons owned some property in the settlement. But Walker Groves was um, bucking hay one day with a team of mules who ran away from him. And unfortunately, he was um, injured very badly, so badly to the point where he died because he was impaled by the buckrake. And his son uh, refuses to go back to the land that they even owned because, as he puts it, the farm killed my daddy, so I'm never going back to the farm. Oh, my goodness. Just a picture of what life was like at that time. Let's talk about some of the interesting personalities, the notable people who settled along with O.T. Jackson in Deerfield. Who, who stands out? Well, one person that stands out is Dr. Westbrook. Um, Dr. Westbrook was a successful Denver physician. This is Henry Peter Westbrook. That's right. I Dr. Just, Joseph Henry Peter Westbrook. I just learned about him, actually. Isn't this the guy who infiltrated the Klan? He did. He had blonde hair and blue eyes, and he could have passed for white if he wanted to. So what he would do is he would go to Klan meetings, he would listen to what was being proposed by the Klan and go back and report that to members of the black community. Uh, He was quite an interesting fellow. He was uh, at Denver General Hospital for 17 years. He spoke to religious and civic groups all over Denver about equality. Um, He was really quite a fascinating man, not only because he named Deerfield, but he was one of Denver's most prominent African-American citizens. He had named Deerfield. And is it simply that the fields were dear to them? And that is why it's spelled D-E-A-R and not D-E-E-R, because the idea was that this was such an important effort to these people that it was something that was special, emotional, even spiritual to many of them. And dear, and dear. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. The filmmaker Charles Knuckles joins us. Uh, His latest documentary is called Remnants of a Dream, and the remnants refer to what remains today of Deerfield, Colorado, this oasis in the early 1900s for African Americans in the state. And I just want to note that the black population was growing fast in those days. So in 1860... Uh, In Colorado, it's about 400 people. And by the turn of the century, about 8,000, according to the census. Did they face a lot of discrimination in Colorado? And how did that compare to other parts of the country, would you say? Well, they certainly faced um, some discrimination. Many would argue that it perhaps was not as bad as the kind of discrimination that people would face in the South. Colorado was never a slave state, but that doesn't mean that there wasn't discrimination. And certainly there was enough discrimination. They felt they needed to get away from it. Absolutely. And that was, O.T. Jackson never really had the idea that he wanted to create a separate community, but he wanted to create a community where African-Americans could have some input 
with regard to how their lives were governed. But even Jackson would face discrimination as well. Yeah, you talked a little bit about his background. So this is O.T. Jackson, Oliver Toussaint Jackson. Um, He was from Ohio, I think you said. Uh, What drew him to Colorado in the first place? The idea of the promise of the American West is what drove O.T. Jackson to Colorado. A familiar theme for settlers. Absolutely. And he became involved in uh, Democratic Party politics in 1906. And this is a time when many African-Americans were Republicans. The Party of Lincoln. The Party of Lincoln, the Party of Emancipation, the Party of Freedom. But Jackson felt as if by getting politically active, he would have better access to government officials and be better empowered to be able to create some of these initiatives that he wanted to. And quite the entrepreneur as well. I mean, beyond Deerfield. Absolutely. Um, Jackson had big ideas. Um, He was someone who first became a caterer. He was a caterer at Chautauqua in Boulder. Um, He managed the the, uh, kitchen facilities there. He owned a couple of restaurants in Boulder. But something that many people may not be aware of was just to the extent of his work in politics. This has been just fascinating for me to learn about. He held a job known as messenger with six different governors for 28 years. He served, you know, both political parties. What was this role, messenger? A gubernatorial messenger conveyed communications, transported documents and handled confidential and sensitive material, uh, much of which we may do electronically today. But at the turn of the last century, people relied on trusted people to be able to handle these tasks. And Jackson was so well-liked and so trusted that he was reappointed by multiple administrations. But even being that close to state government still did not um, free him from aspects of discrimination. And in one particular Um, story stands out. Yeah, tell me of that. Well, in in 1929, Jackson needed to get some documents to the governor who was staying at the Brown Palace Hotel. And the Brown Palace Hotel, as many people know, is a hotel here in Denver. Yeah, quite fancy, even now. And then it must have just been, you know, a sparkling. Well, Jackson went into the hotel. He went to use the elevators and was told that because he was a black man, he would not be able to use the elevator to deliver the documents he needed to to the governor. Jackson said, yes, I am indeed a black man, but since I am a government official, I've been a taxpayer in Colorado for 42 years, I don't see any reason why I can't use a public elevator in dispatching my duties as messenger. He was still refused. So Jackson walked up four flights of stairs, delivered the documents to the governor, walked back down the four flights of stairs, never to return to the Brown Palace Hotel again. Hmm. And he held these duties at the same time that he's trying to make Deerfield thrive. But we know, just based on seeing what Deerfield is today, that it... It did not persevere. What happened? Well, several things happened. And Deerfield was a dry land farming operation. They did not have access to water. It took money 
to buy water rights. So they started when there was a wet cycle in the Colorado climate. Oh, I see. And they could grow anything during that time, during that wet cycle. And they did. They really thrived, really prospered. But once that wet cycle ended, the water dried up. And then you had the rural depression that started in the early 1920s. Most people think of the Great Depression as when the stock market crashed in 1929. Mm. But for many rural communities all across America, the depression started in the early 20s. Then you've got the Dust Bowl, right? That, that doesn't help. The Dust Bowl was really the, the final, final blow to the colony. I hinted in the introduction that there's new optimism for Deerfield. Preservationists now say there's enough progress being made toward preserving it, that they're sort of tweaking its status. Uh, I know that homes are being built in the area, and uh, we confirmed with a spokesperson for the company doing that work that there are negotiations going on about preservation there. There are negotiations going on to be able to save the town site. And some great work is being done by um, some University of Northern Colorado professors uh, led by Dr. George June and Dr. Bob Brunswick, who are creating archaeological surveys using drones and um, 3D modeling to be able to reconstruct what the buildings were like. Charles, what do you feel when you're out there? Just, we have a few seconds left. Uh, you feel the isolation, just how desolate this area is. It's a hard place to live. It's a hard place to live now. And in 1910, one can only imagine how hard it would be to live there. And the spirit of the people who, who tried. They were among the most determined people you, you could find because they wanted to create a better life for themselves and for their children. That's Charles Knuckles. He directed Remnants of a Dream, the story of Deerfield, Colorado. Deerfield is on the National Register of Historic Places and remains on the Endangered Places list compiled by Colorado Preservation, Inc. Later today, we'll post a link to the full film, Remnants of a Dream, at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters. Tomorrow, CPR News will have special coverage of the State of the Union Address from President Donald Trump. Live coverage will begin at 7 p.m. The President's Address will be followed by the Democratic Response. NPR will provide this special coverage along with analysis about the speech. Hear the State of the Union Address live starting at 7 p.m. tomorrow on CPR News. Since the 1940s, volunteer groups have helped rescue hikers and climbers in peril in remote mountain settings. But a growing number of emergency calls is putting pressure on these elite mountaineers who put their lives on the line. CPR's Grace Hood reports that lawmakers are looking to help them. If you want to understand how vital Colorado's all-volunteer search and rescue groups are, consider the story of climber Chris Klinga. It was April 2008. He and his climbing partner headed up a steep route on Red Garden Wall in El Dorado Canyon outside of Boulder. Above him, his climbing partner grabbed onto a rock 20 feet above. All of a sudden, a 300-pound coffee table-sized rock came tumbling down. At that time, the rock fell with him, and then I was able to arrest his fall, so stop him from falling. 
That rock left his climbing partner with a lacerated liver and more minor injuries. It broke Klinga's pelvis and both legs in multiple places. Eventually, a third climber in the area called 911. When Andrew Hildner and Rocky Mountain Rescue Group showed up, it was up to them to figure out how to get Klinga off the mountain. It took every trick in the book. Volunteer rescuers had to determine how to safely remove the rock on top of Klinga. Then they had to lower him down an unstable rock field. Kind of every rescue system that we have to get the patient safely off the, the cliff face and then down to the waiting ambulance. Klinga's total hospital bills were $1.2 million. The price tag of the elaborate multi-hour rescue? Zero dollars. Hildner and Rocky Mountain Rescue in Boulder says every time 911 funnels calls to them, volunteers spring into action free of charge. We are seeing more and more technical rescues for, for rock climbing. However, that being said, uh, 60% of our rescues are still for everyday hikers. So this isn't just something for kind of extreme athletes doing extreme things. Most of these are isolated lower extremity injuries from just hiking around. Rocky Mountain Rescue and other similar organizations believe free rescue is critical. Adding costs could delay 911 calls, which would put volunteers at even greater risk. But as more people move to Colorado to enjoy the outdoors, calls are up. Rocky Mountain averages about 200 calls a year. That makes it one of the busiest all-volunteer-run organizations in the country. State Senator Kerry Donovan of Vail says lawmakers are looking at how to help. It can be 10 below. It can be the middle of the night. And they start to be the people that, that go in to help people that are in emergency situations out in the woods. Donovan introduced legislation to identify what stresses this puts on volunteer-run organizations. How many calls are coming in across the state? Do teams have enough equipment? A second goal of the bill is to offer training for groups on the psychological stresses of backcountry rescue. If we are, as a state, going to encourage people to come and play, we also need to support the people that are going to help people come and play safely. So eventually it is going to be about funding search and rescue. In the future, Donovan wants to find these groups more money. There are funding streams that search and rescue groups can tap into. Hikers can buy a $3 card that goes into the Colorado Search and Rescue Fund. But it's not well known. Today, climber Chris Klinga now has an American Alpine Club membership, which also offers rescue benefits. You know, to be where I'm at today, and, and I'm so thankful for what happened. I know it sounds kind of sick and twisted, but... I would never be where I am today if that hadn't happened. Klinga is 99% back to where he was before the accident, and he's still climbing. In the coming weeks, Colorado lawmakers will discuss how to best revive the state's tax search and rescue teams so they can serve future generations. I'm Grace Hood, CPR News. Two parks in Colorado want to be the next to get dark sky designations. Mesa Verde National Park in southwest Colorado and Jackson Lake State Park in northeast Colorado. The Denver Post reports that both are applying with the International Dark Sky Association. If they're selected, they will follow Colorado's most recent designee, the Great Sand Dunes, which was picked last year. I spoke with longtime ranger there, Fred Bunch, in May about what it means to be a dark sky park. Fred, it's interesting. You're a resources manager. I guess light and darkness, that's a resource, would you say? Oh, very much. 
half the park is after dark, as we say, and dark night skies allow for uh, animals and uh, other living things that are active at night. And particularly at the dunes, when it gets so hot during the day, many, many of the creatures are nocturnal. And then the cultural part of it is the stories. Every culture across the world have tales that come from the heavens. Help me understand what it looks like at the sand dunes at night when I look up at the sky. You stand in silent amazement when you look up at the night skies over great sand dunes because you can see stars, the order of magnitude you couldn't even think about in a city or an area where there's light pollution. And so you look at, into the depths of the heavens. It's almost indescribable, the awe that you get when you look in the night sky. Now, help me understand, is the Great Sand Dunes now a international dark sky park simply because it's never really had light pollution? Or have you taken steps to, like, reduce the light pollution at the park? We have taken steps to reduce the external lighting, put it on motion sensors, lower the amperage. And so that's one piece of it. The other parts of it are that you have to measure the night sky through sky quality meters to actually show how dark it is. And the third part of that is we have to reach out to the public and inform them about the benefits of dark night skies. Ah, I see. So part of this is an education campaign that will continue as people visit the park. This is fascinating. You have to measure the darkness. That's right. There's a, an instrument that we use when there's no moon or, uh, and it's clear skies. We can go out and, and do readings, and some of our readings are almost to the capacity of what the instruments can read. Now, I understand you have with you a volunteer who helped make this happen, Fred. Uh, who are you going to pass the phone over to? Well, it's my pleasure to introduce to you Bob Bully, an engineer, and he's volunteered for us for several years, and we couldn't have done this without him. Hi, Ryan. Hi there. Why was this important to you? It, um, the world's population, we have lost our ability to see the heavens at night. NASA estimates that only 17% of Americans can see our home galaxy, the Milky Way, from their home locations. But parks like Great Sand Dunes offer a refuge where people can reconnect with the night sky. And this is important. The light bulb, the incandescent light bulb that Edison invented, the first commercial light bulb, was invented in 1879. That is 140 years ago. All life on Earth, plant life, animal life, human life, insect life, evolved hundreds of thousands of years to millions of years before the light bulb changed our world. And we're struggling to adapt. Wildlife is struggling to adapt, and humans are struggling to adapt. Wow, I've never quite heard it put that way. Thanks for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you. You heard from Fred Bunch. He's Chief of Resources Management at Great Sand Dunes National Park and Preserve. It was deemed an international dark sky park last year, and two more parks in Colorado are vying for the designation, Mesa Verde and Jackson Lake State Park. Finally today, new music from alternative folk band Whippoorwill. The Fort Collins Trio released their first full-length album in November, The Nature of Storms. They joined us in the CPR Performance Studio back in 2017 and spoke about one of the many storms that inspired the album title. This one, a tornado they encountered while driving through Oklahoma. You know, we were completely oblivious just driving through in our new old minivan And the transmission, at the point at which we thought we were going to be destroyed by the tornado, the transmission in the van started to fail. 
I thought that the two girls had disappeared into the sky. I was driving our friend Anna's van in front of them, and I saw their headlights behind us, and then all of a sudden they were gone. And that's when the transmission went out, and I thought they were up with Dorothy somewhere. (laughs) That is drummer Tobias Bank and vocalist Alicia Kraft. Fortunately, they all survived, and now songs like I Got Drunk are out in the world for all to enjoy. I got drunk in the morning time Just roaming around Trying to find Plans that we made In the bed that we laid Oh, I don't think I can do this For another day Drunk from Fort Collins band Whippoorwill on their debut full-length album. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner. It's CPR News and Colorado Matters.